Welcome to the Assurology Show, a growth hacker's guide to human capital management with your host, Mike Vinoy. Each week, we bring you experts in human resources, employment law, accounting, benefits planning, and more to build productive organizations. You'll gain practical guidance for your business. You'll be alerted to the latest news and megatrends that impact small and mid-sized companies. We'll give you the hands-on information you need to stay compliant with ever-changing employment laws, the strategies you need to win the war for talent, and much more. So you can focus on what you do best, growing your business. Enjoy the show. ACA penalties have increased. Everything you need to know about the Affordable Care Act in 2023. Hi, my name is Mike Vinoy, Vice President of Marketing at Assure, and I uh, have a great guest today. If you're a regular watcher of the show, you know Brian. Uh, Brian Schenker is an attorney at the Long Island, New York office of Jackson & Lewis. Brian's practice focuses on representing employers in a wide range of workplace matters, as well as preventative advice and counseling. Brian has extensive experience defending class and collective action lawsuits under federal and state wage and hour laws. He has successfully defended wage and hour audits conducted by the U.S. and New York State Departments of Labor, and Brian regularly handles cases before courts and administrative agencies involving claims of discrimination, sexual harassment, and retaliation. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right. So ACA, the Affordable Care Act, uh, 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 th this has been in place, I guess we're going on, what, about eight, seven, eight years now, 2008? Uh, President Obama, this is probably his most well-known piece of legislation that, that, that he got through. So uh, 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 not a whole heck of a lot has changed, I'd say, in the last year. There have been some Supreme Court rulings along the way that have made some uh, fundamentally impacted the law uh, in the last eight years. But for the last year, not too much until now, 2023 uh, changes to the penalties for noncompliance. First of all, do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. So, right, uh, you know, since the legislation was signed into law, right, it's kind of uh, changed a bit over the years based on, you know, various uh, decisions, right? We saw the, uh, you know, the uh, individual uh, mandate uh, go by the wayside, but, you know, as ACA stands, right, you know, we still have the, uh, the employer uh, mandate and we have the shared responsibility. And uh, like you mentioned, we have uh, increase in penalties uh, this year as well. So before we jump into the specific penalty, just so everybody understands it, um, let's maybe take a step back and let's let's unpack what is ACA. I'll I'll start. I'll do the easy part. It stands for the Affordable Care Act. Um, and, and, but uh, you you take the rest here, Brian. What is the Affordable Care Act? Who does it apply to? How must uh, employers comply? R really, everything a small business owner or small business manager needs to know. Sure. So, right, the Affordable Care Act uh, really was, as we discussed, the healthcare reform law, and uh, it addresses you know, health insurance coverage costs uh, and such. And it really, uh, what is the big uh, item that we'll be discussing today, and there are many parts of it, is the employer mandate, uh, right? So, you know, it, it's almost you know mistermed, right, because you know, the ACA, it doesn't require businesses to provide health benefits to their workers. Uh, however, certain businesses, those with uh, over 
uh, you know, 50 full-time employees or equivalents, and we'll get into all of that in a bit. Uh, but those uh, larger employers can face uh, certain tax penalties if they don't provide uh, compliant health coverage that, you know, meets certain standards. Uh, so that is, you know, really the meat and potatoes of what we're getting into today. And, it, you know, it's often termed the, the shared responsibility rules or, you know, the pay to play, right? Those are other words, you know, other terms for the employer mandate. And, you know, these rules, you know, ACA is really designed uh, to promote the employer's traditional role in providing health care, uh, access to health care insurance. Um, and so, you know, there are a number of, uh, you know, key elements that we'll, we'll hit on today, right? The standards uh, for, yeah. you know, minimal essential coverage and the mandate, as I discussed, um, you know, there are certain filing requirements we'll, we'll get into. Uh, and again, you know, there are, uh, but again, you know, th let's take a step back, right? It's not just large employers. There are, uh, you know, requirements and, you know, certain, you uh, uh, things that are required of you know smaller employers, especially if they choose to provide uh, you know health coverage, health right. insurance coverage to their employees. Right, and maybe I think it always helps to understand the why. Right, so uh, again, we, you know, we do our very best to, to stay apolitical in the show. So you know, I'm not interested in in whether you love this law, or hate this law. There's there's obviously a spirited debate eight years ago when this became became law. Uh, and some subsequent uh, Supreme Court rulings, but the 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 purpose behind the law uh, is in the name. It's the Affordable Care Act. I, I I think it's fair to say the intent, whether maybe mixed reviews on success, the intent of the law uh, was to bend the cost curve. Right, part of the problem with uh, healthcare costs, uh, certainly at the time, uh, spiraling spiraling out of control is the uninsured and the burden of small, the smallest employers who maybe were on the brink of whether they could afford to provide health benefits to their employees and these uninsured people showing up at emergency rooms and we're all paying for this anyway. And so therefore the Affordable Care Act and some, it's, it's much more complex than that. I'm oversimplifying, but really an, an attempt to be, to include more people, leave fewer people uncovered and therefore get ahead of the cost curve, things like prevention with good health insurance instead of just reacting to expensive emergencies. Uh, so I, I think the reason I want to talk about that is because everything we talk here around compliance requirements, it really kind of backs into that intent. So again, whether it succeeds in, the, in, in that purpose or not is a, is a different topic. We're not even exploring that, but we want all business owners to understand what the law requires of them in, in areas where it may get nuanced, it's always important to step back and understand the why. And the why is to, to bend the cost curve and reduce the overall cost of healthcare. Brian, what, what would you add or take away from that? Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on with that, Mike. And uh, right, that's why the, the various requirements of right, providing, as you said, affordable coverage that doesn't exceed uh, certain you know cost levels to the employees is you know one of the touchstones of this law and you know the failure of an employer to do that under certain circumstances can result in you know in penalties or you know taxes uh, to the employer and so you know that's what this is designed to do right and as an employer what you want to avoid is you know not offering uh, 
that type of sufficient coverage and having uh, an employee then get, you know, a subsidy from the government, which, you know, can then trigger, uh, you know, penalties from the employer. And that's all because of, you know, we're looking at the cost, we're looking at the, you know, the scope of the coverage. And, and yeah, that's, uh, you know, the shared responsibility element is what, you know, brings this on to employers and requires, you know, compliance uh, to, to avoid the uh, penalties. So let's, there's, there's layers of here. So let's start with just the highest level, which employers need to comply with this law? Sure. So the majority of uh, the acts requirements uh, apply to businesses with 50 or more uh, full-time employees or full-time equivalents, uh, right? So if you have, if you're a company with less than 50 full-time uh, employees or equivalents, uh, then you may still have some requirements, but uh, you know a lot of what we'll discuss today is for those with 50 or more. And again, we'll get into you know how you count those because that is significant. Uh, you know to make sure number one that that your organization knows whether it's uh, what's called uh, you know in a uh, applicable large employer an ALE right those with 50 or more uh, full time employees or equivalents. Um, so, you know, under, under the mandate, under the employer mandate, uh, these large employers must offer affordable health coverage to employees and the insurance must provide minimum value, uh, to the employees and their, their dependents. Uh, so if the employer, if the employer doesn't, it may be subject to penalties. Uh, and so, you know, again, the, you know, the first question is then determining, you know, are you one of these, uh, yeah. Uh, ALEs. And, you know, so that that's the threshold question here for businesses. So, so let's start there. I got a bunch of questions. You, you, you're an attorney and you provided some very lawyerly sounding words as in affordable and minimum value that we're going to have to explore. Uh, uh, but, but first let, let's, let's get a, an assessment on the 50 employee mark. So, and I'm just going to kind of brain dump things I think we need to understand. Um, full-time equivalency. So how do you calculate your part-timers uh, and how do you account for seasonality, right? So maybe they're full-time, but only part of the year. How, how do we, what, how does the formula work for calculating 50 full-time equivalents? Yeah. Great question. Exactly where we want to start. And uh, so, you know, really for the majority of organizations, uh, the calculation is, you know, fairly straightforward. Uh, first, you start with your full-time employees, right? So these are defined as individuals who are working at least uh, an average of 30 hours a month, uh, and you count up all of your organization's full-time employees. Uh, and then, right now, we need the full-time equivalents. So that can be, you know, that's a little more complicated, but, you know, it's, it's not necessarily rocket science. Uh, so to calculate the equivalent, the full-time equivalents, uh, we add up the total hours worked by part-time employees in a given month with a cap at 120 hours uh, for each employee. Uh, and then we divide that total of, that total number of hours worked by those part-time employees by 120. And whatever number that comes out to, that gives you your full-time equivalents. And then you are adding your full-time employees and your full-time equivalents for all 12 months, right? And we're, so we're looking at the prior year in this, in this uh, uh, calculation. 
and so you do that. It's basically a monthly, you're going to have, you know, the number of full timers and full time equivalents uh, on a monthly basis. And basically any company with a monthly average of 50 or more uh, employees or full time equivalents uh, in the previous calendar year is considered an applicable large employer. Uh, now, as you mentioned, right there, there can be complications to this right there. There can be exceptions uh, to the rule. And, uh, you know, for instance, right, those with uh, uh, seasonal workers. Uh, so employers who have more than 50 full time employees uh, for only 120 days or fewer during the calendar year uh, may not be these applicable large employers provided that 50 of those workers, uh, you know, sorry, uh, you know, as long as, you know, those in excess in, of 50, you know, were seasonal workers. So for those uh, companies with, you know, a seasonal workforce, you know, that's something to certainly take note of. And, you know, uh, certainly you want to look into that exception a bit more. Don't necessarily assume you're, you know, an applicable large employer. It's possible, you know, you could be, uh, you fall below that. On the, on the other hand, you know, I, I think there are uh, some employers that might think they fall below it, uh, but not. And I, what I'm talking about is really uh, common, you know, these control groups. So, right. you know, you know, companies that uh, you know, are within the same control groups. So these would be, you know, affiliated entities where there's, you know, common ownership, you know, subsidiaries and parent companies. Uh, you know, we're not going to get into, you know, all the regulations on this, but, you know, companies should, have, you know, you should have the understanding that if, if your company is related in some way to others, uh, other companies, you should understand whether you fall into a control group, because in that case, it's going to aggregate the employees of the various uh, control group members. Right. Is it, I don't want to go too deep down a rabbit hole necessarily, but um, is 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 the essentially the same ownership aggregation rules that we would use, say, in in ERTC employer retention tax credits? That if you own more than fifty one percent of this entity and this entity, then you from from the IRS perspective, you're it's one company. Yeah, they're going to be quite similar to that. Yes. So, so you're right. Yeah. So I think I think this is an area where I see entrepreneurs of small and growing businesses get themselves in trouble. So maybe uh, I'm assuming this is these are IRS regulations that de determine the exact formulas for for ownership aggregation. Is that fair? Yes, that's right. That's right. But uh, rough general rule of thumb. If you're an owner of a business, you're a majority owner of a business, and you've got uh, location number one, you, you, you've opened the St. Louis office, you've had success, and you got 25 employees. You open the Chicago office with another 25 employees. You open the Denver office with another 25 employees. Chances are the way the law is going to see you is as a 75-employee company, not three separate small 25 employee companies. Generally speaking, obviously there's nuance, but that's the way we should be thinking about this, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, what, what people should also understand is 
these could be unrelated businesses, right? If you, right. Well, you know, let's take a very simple example. You as an individual are, are the owner of two different companies. You know, one is, uh, you know, a restaurant. The other, you know, sells widgets, right? Though it doesn't matter how separate they are, you know, that they do different things. If they're in the same control group, they're going, you know, the employees will be aggregated. So, you know, sure. don't think because, you know, it's a different line of business that it won't necessarily be counted, that that's not really a, a factor in it. And just and if we take people back to what is the intent of the law, the intent of the law is to bend the cost curve and not to not to penalize truly small employers under 50 employees. But if you are a person, the, the assumption, good or bad, is that you have the financial wherewithal uh, of being an owner of multiple businesses you probably have the financial wherewithal to participate in this providing of health insurance to to employees. So that, 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 I think that's an important nuance. Yeah, and I think one, one last point on this, and I, I have to say it given my uh, wage and hour uh, background, is that uh, look, many companies uh, have, you know, not employ, have uh, independent contractors working for them. And imagine this scenario, you know, you have, 20 independent contractors and, you know, 35 uh, full-time employees. Now you're thinking, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not in uh, a large employer, but are those independent contractors classified correctly, right? So misclassification of employees as independent contractors uh, can be a real potential minefield for companies, right? Because that would then potentially increase them above the threshold to trigger uh, ACA's, you know, large employer requirements. So, you know, for companies that have a large, you know, number of, uh, of independent contractors, or at least enough that if they were misclassified, it could push them over the 50 uh, figure. It's, it's, you know, you'd be well guided to double check and evaluate whether you, those truly are independent contracts. Let's let's spend some more time there because I think that's probably one of the one of the biggest areas, one of the next biggest areas that employers get themselves in trouble. And I think it's I think it's two things. Number one is, oh, uh, this only applies to full time employees. I'll just keep every and and there's this thought of okay, greater than thirty hours. If it, unpacking the math that you shared earlier, one hundred twenty hours a month. <clears throat> is essentially 30 hours a week, right? So um, so I'll just keep my people at 28, 29 hours a week, and therefore I don't have to pay insurance. You know, right. dis dispel that one for us, please, because that's, uh, that's something people get in trouble very regularly. Right, and so look, it's going to, uh, you know, come, come back to bite you potentially, right? So if you're, even if you're keeping employees under that, you know, 130 in a month, I mean, look, if you're very close, that could be an issue too, whether they're actually going over it. But again, you know, those individuals will still count as full-time equivalents uh, for the purposes of calculating, you know, whether the company is a large employer. So, you know, again, just decreasing hours doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, avoid the issue here. Um, and again, right, you know, there, there are costs certainly involved in, you know, providing uh, health insurance under ACA. Uh, but again, is it worth it to, you know, set your workforce, set your schedules to avoid this? 
right? That probably will have, you know, impact actual, you know, operations. Yeah. Uh, not to mention, look, there are some very good reasons why small employers, those under 50, would still want to offer health insurance, right? So just because you're not a large employer, you know, doesn't mean, hey, you know, we're never going to offer insurance, right? You can attract, uh, you know, better talent potentially, stand out against competition, obviously, you know, potentially have a healthier workforce. Um, you know, there are potential, you know, tax savings uh, for companies that offer uh, insurance. So, you know, there are a lot of good reasons to offer insurance and not necessarily try to avoid the requirements of ACA. So, uh, and I want to come back to that because I think that's really important. I think I think market forces are going to be the, the biggest driver to employers providing you know, health coverage, regardless of what the law says, uh, starting, I'd say, now, start, uh, call it maybe a year ago, uh, going forward. Um, that said, so there's two scenarios I want to talk about uh, that people get in trouble. Number one is, oh, I'll, I'll just pay them less. I'll, I'll just have them work fewer than 30 hours um, and they can still get themselves in trouble, as you noted. The other is, I'm going to come back to this 1099. Oh, these are just contractors. <clears throat> It's possible for that to be true. We've done, you and I have had conversations. Mary Simmons has been a guest on the show. We've talked about this. This is another one of those, call it top 10 areas employers get themselves in trouble is, oh, I'll just make you a 1099. But there's clear litmus tests available on what does or doesn't qualify for a 1099. And if the reason you're putting them on a 1099 instead of a W-2 employee is, to avoid the tax, you're almost certainly breaking the law, right? There are, there are very clear guidelines. We don't have to go to all of them, but there are very clear guidelines of what does and doesn't qualify as a 1099, uh, can't even call it employee. It's not, there's no such thing as a 1099 employee. There are 1099 contractors, there are W-2 employees. Um, without turning this into a, a, a show about 1099 qualifications, what would be just your 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 quick hit list for employers to be a, a, on the lookout for here, Brian? Right. So there there are so many factors that these tests look at, but what I often uh, say is look at control. Right. You know, is the company controlling this individual, or are they controlling it? Right. Who's who's controlling how the job gets done? Uh, so you know, another thing besides control would be you know the length of the engagement, right? If you have independent contractors that have worked for years and it's more or less a permanent position, that that could be a protect, uh, potential problem. And then I, I think, you know, another, you know, kind of thing to think about is, you know, is this, at, you know, is whatever you're doing, you know, the main part of your business, right? The money-making part of your business, you know, are, are they, are the independent contractors involved in that? If they are, that might tell you that you know they, they might be employees, and you know if they're really engaged uh, in the heart of your business, um, you know that not a tried and true test, but you know I think those are some things to look at. Uh, and again, you know one other thing that I'd say at a higher level would be, you know, does the independent contractor have the opportunity for you know profit or loss? Right, if you're paying them a salary, probably not an independent contractor. You know, if they're using their own equipment and they might, right. you know, sometimes, you know, lose money on a job versus make it, you know, that's the indication of uh, an independent contractor. 
Yeah, an example I like to share is if you were going to hire somebody to remodel your kitchen, they're probably within reason. They have to. They, they may have to conform within the general timeline, but time of day is up to them. They provide their own tools. They're going to determine the methods uh, that they uh, of the construction work. If you are providing their tools, telling them when they have to be there, telling them the exact methods and processes to follow, um, you know that really doesn't happen. We're used to hiring contractors to redo our kitchen, but white collar work is the same thing. If you're if you're providing the laptop, you're telling the way in which they perform their job, when and where they perform that job. That ain't no 1099. You're breaking the law there. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we talked about uh, the full-time equivalency test. We talked about part-time and seasonality. We talked about the whole 1099 issue where people get themselves uh, in, in trouble. Um, let's, let's jump to the topic, the, 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 the title here. What are the increases in penalties for non-compliance? Sure. So st stepping back for a sec, right there, there, we can broadly say there are two types of uh, penalties under uh, ACA, right? So first there are the penalties under section uh, 4980H, which those uh, those ones enforce ACA's requirements for minimum essential coverage. Uh, and we'll discuss their two sets of penalties within there. And then second, there are the separate penalties under uh, Section 6056 of the IRC, the Internal Revenue Code, uh, for violations of the filing requirements, like the, the, uh, the reporting requirements uh, to the IRS. Uh, and so uh, certainly, you know, both are applicable there. Some are more serious than others. Uh, and so, you know, if we start out with the uh, 4980H penalties, uh, so under subsection A, employers are subject to penalties if they fail to offer 95% of their full-time employees uh, a chance to enroll in minimum essential coverage. Uh, or if a single employee uh, qual uh, qualifies for the uh, premium uh, tax credit or subsidy. Um, and so under Section A, uh, this is the big one, right? This is a big one. So here it's a it's now a $240 per month penalty per employee. And so that's uh, $2,880 uh, $2, per year. Um, and again, that's per employee. So this is triggered if the company fails to offer minimum essential coverage to 90% of its full-time employees uh, or, right? So uh, that penalty, uh, you know, again, it, it can, you know, I'll, I'll give a, you know, a quick example, right? So let's say your organization has 100 employees and it has just one single employee uh, receive the premium tax credit. Right, because they weren't offered sufficient coverage. Now you're going to be charged against your entire employee account, uh, and so again, there's a, a provision that says you subtract 30 off the top. So basically, you'd have that $2,880 penalty multiplied by 70 employees, 70 out of the 100, because you get the 30 off the top. That's over a $200,000 penalty uh, because one employee. Uh, received, you know, the premium tax credit. So that is significant. It's applied 
uh, on a per capita basis for every full-time employee uh, without regard as to whether each individual employee was offered coverage. Uh, so again, you know, it's not necessarily a full year, right? This can be a penalty that's applied on a monthly basis if there's, you know, any month uh, when, when this is triggered. Uh, but again, you know, that's a, it can be a very significant penalty. Um, penalty B, right, which is subsection B of uh, section 4980. Now that, that provides uh, a $360 per month penalty or $4,320 annually uh, per employee. Uh, and that's up about uh, almost $20 from, from last year. Previously it was 343 per month. Uh, now this, Penalty B will be imposed if an employer fails to offer all you know, full-time employees coverage that meets the affordability and minimum value thresholds. Again, we're, we're going to get to that in a bit, uh, what those uh, affordability and uh, minimum value mean. Uh, but again, this penalty is not as... Uh, you know, significant, it's significant, but it's not as, uh, it doesn't come down as hard as employers as this penalty A, because this is only assessed per employee, uh, not for the whole workforce. So, you know, a company that say they have, uh, you know, 15 full-time employees, obviously they must have, you know, a lot of full-time equivalents to hit the 50 mark. Let's say they have 15 employees, full-timers, and, you know, uh, uh, you know, 10 of them, uh, they get, they receive a penalty for 10 of them for six months, right? So again, it doesn't have to be the whole year and it does it's not going to be necessarily for all employees. So in that situation, we're talking about, you know, 360 times the 10 employees times the six months. And it's, you know, maybe a 20 to $25,000 penalty. Mm -hmm. um, now, again, this is less substantial because the company has already offered coverage to 95% of its workforce. So it's done the big lifting, but you know, this penalty is a result of coverage, not necessarily being affordable or meeting minimum value for certain employees. Let, let, let's go there then. Let's, so let's define what those two very lawyerly terms actually mean and how, how could, uh, how should employers be thinking about them? Absolutely. So affordable coverage, right? So, uh, you know, this is, you know, as we've discussed, you've heard the name, yeah, everyone is hearing the word affordable many times. So you are, for this test, right, to see if it's affordable coverage, you're looking at the employee's cost of enrolling in the least expensive coverage offered by the company that provides minimum value. So even if the employee selects a more expensive plan, doesn't matter. There just needs to be at least one offering of a plan that is quote unquote affordable. Now, obviously, what does that mean? Yeah. So there's an affordability threshold that the, uh, the IRS updates for each year. And so right now, I'll tell you, it's 9.12%. That doesn't mean much by itself, right? What, what does that mean? So that means the employee contributions for uh, an employee coverage uh, only plan should not exceed 9.12% of the employee's household income. Okay. Okay. Now, 
I'm sure, Mike, what you're about to ask me is how in the world as an employer do I know what my right. uh, what my employee's household income is? Right. And you're you'd be exactly right that, you know, an employer can't know that. So what ACA does uh, is it it sets forth some s- several safe harbors. Right. So there are three safe harbors that ACA provides. And the employer can generally select, you know, one of those. Um, It's, you know, typically you select one, you stay with it for the year. Uh, Potentially, you know, you could have different classifications subject to different uh, safe harbors. Uh, But, you know, let's let's just go through those three safe harbors uh, real quickly. And I will note that these are important because the safe harbor that an employer selects will dictate how much the employer might have to pay for insurance because the safe harbor will dictate the maximum amount that the employee can pay towards their health insurance. So then obviously as a company, you are paying the the remainder of that. Uh, So, you know, the first safe harbor is the federal poverty level. So what we do, we use the annual federal poverty line, and which I believe this year is uh, 14,000 and change. And we multiply that by the affordability threshold this year, which is 9.12%. And you know, that gives you, I, I think it's a little over $1,300 annually or uh, about $110 per month uh, under that safe harbor. So basically the safe harbor gives benefit of the doubt that, hey, this has to be affordable to essentially the par- down to the poverty line. Right. So in that scenario, you could not require an employee to pay a premium of more than 110 per month. The employer would have to right. pick up you know, any amount uh, beyond that. Right. And typically, this federal poverty uh, level safe harbor is going to be the most conservative, right? You're, as the employer, you're probably going to end up paying the most under this because it's going to set the employee's uh, you know, uh, affordability threshold, you know, lower. So, you know, then the, the second one you could use is the rate of pay safe, safe harbor. Quite uh, as it sounds like it's, you're basing off the rate of pay for, uh, you know, employees, whether, you know, for an hourly employee, it's their hourly rate or a monthly salary for, you know, a, a salaried exempt employee. And so for these employees, right, the the premium that they pay can be no more than 9.12% of their monthly rate of pay, which is calculated by taking their hourly rate and multiplying that by 130 hours. Um, you know, so an example here, I think that'll help. Uh, you know, let's say you have an employee earning $15 an hour. So you'd multiply that by 130 hours, which gives you, I think, uh, 1900, uh, a little over 1900. Uh, dollars, and then you multiply that figure by the 9.12%, uh, which I believe I, I did this calculation earlier. I believe it's about uh, $177. Uh, so under this safe harbor, and uh, you, you know, uh, an employee could be required to pay a premium of 177, right? And that's significantly more than 110. So you know, in this scenario, you'd be looking at you know, oh. The, pay, the rate of pay safe harbor is more advantageous for our company. Um, you know, so 
you know, again, then the last one that you can use is the, uh, the W-2 safe harbor. You're looking at box one on a W-2 form. And basically uh, from there, you're taking 9.12% of the year's wages. Now, keep in mind, I believe uh, box one is the income reduced by, you know, pre-tax deductions like a 401k and, and other uh, things like that. Um, but, you know, again, let's use an example. So we have an employee who makes, say, 32000 a year. Uh, doesn't matter whether that's at a salary or an hourly rate, right? That's what box one says. And then we multiply that by 9.12%. Uh, and because that's the annual salary, then we're dividing it by 12 months. So I believe in the 32000 uh, salary uh, or, you know, wage uh, level, that would come out to about uh, two hundred and forty dollars uh, per month. So in that scenario, right, you're looking at even higher amount that the company could, uh, you know, charge, you know, have the employees pay pay as their premium. Yeah. Right. So you know, the, these are things that you know, as a company, you, you want to look into which safe harbor is going to be uh, most advantageous. And like I said, you don't need to use the same safe harbor for all employees. You could do one for salaried, one for hourly employees. You can separate, you can you know, draw the line based on job classifications, or if you have employees in different states, you can apply different safe right. harbors, employees in different states. But I think the key here is that the company looks into this because the amount that you can charge employees for their premium, which then results in the company either paying more or less of the health insurance, is a direct result of which safe harbor the company uses. Uh, so, you know, very important to figure that out. Uh, these calculations aren't too complex. So, and again, it's often backwards looking, right? So when you're talking about the W-2, right, you're obviously looking at, you know, the W-2 for the previous year. So these are things that a company can calculate to figure out, you know, which will give them the best benefit. That was a, a question I forgot to ask you, and I think you just answered, uh, re but you're regarding a safe harbor. For the full-time equivalency test, you said that's prior year. Is that, that's not trailing 12 months, that's the prior tax year, right? Right, right, the prior tax year. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, Okay, so you got your different safe harbors. Um, if I'm an entrepreneur listening to this, I run a landscaping company. Um, I've got five crews and I'm kicking, scratching, clawing, uh, working my tail off here. I understand conceptually I might need to uh, provide, I, 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 so I believe I uh, qualify as an ALE, um, applicable large employer. Uh, that I must comply with the ACA. Um, but everything you just read aloud for the last 10 minutes is, holy cow, that's complex. How will I ever remember this? Is it fair to say that um, you, you need the determination whether you are whether you must comply or not uh, based on an HR or an attorney's expertise, but the actual qualifying plans are largely facilitated in, through the consultation of, of a, an insurance broker? Right, right. They, they are. so And so, you know, brokers may be able to help you 
uh, you know, figure some of these things out. But again, you know, relying on a, a broker alone, um, right? Again, our whole discussion of independent contractors, right? So, you know, a broker might only look so far, right? You know, whereas you talk to an HR professional or an attorney, and you know they might look you know help you identify certain things that you know a broker might not either know about or you know just you know get into uh with the employer so you know it's important to have these this understanding so that you know you know if you're speaking to a broker what questions to even ask right right you want to understand what you're offering and how you're complying and you know if there are uh less expensive ways to comply with the law uh, and so, you know, I, I think that's very important because, you know, compliance with ACA is not really, as you see, one size fits all. Uh, yeah. There are a variety of options that you have as an employer in compliance. Uh, and, so, and many of them dictate, you know, how much you're going to pay or whether you're going to have penalties. Um, right. And, and, and I go there, Brian, because I, I think it's important for anybody watching, listening to, to this show live or on demand that the the real you must comply with all of it but the really important thing to understand as an employer is uh are you required to comply by the law uh uh because there are there's lots of resources to help you it pretty tough i think it's important to have a general understanding so if you're if you're 60 full-time employees you clearly must comply with aca um, I think everything Brian's talking about are on the different safe harbors and, uh, you know, this plan for this group, this plan for that group based on geographies, exempt, non-exempt. There's a lot of things you can do. Um, we're not, I wouldn't encourage you to simply outsource everything to your broker. It's important to understand the requirements of your business, but the fulfillment part, there's help out there in the marketplace you don't go direct to Blue Cross Blue Shield. You work through a broker who 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 they work with Blue Cross Blue Shield. I, I feel like the world of insurance brokers um, has really shifted. There was a you know pre ACA, I'd call it the Wild Wild West, where you know great benefit brokers were truly consultants trying to help you put together benefit plans to recruit and retain people in a cost effective way. Um, uh, but there's also some gamesmanship around, you know, commission products and whatnot. I think the ACA has homogenized what they must offer because they must offer ACA compliant plans. It, it, is that how you see it as well? Yeah. And I, I you make a great point. And so this, I, I think is a great segue to the other requirement, right? So we were talking about, uh, affordability and ACA also requires, you know, companies to, or ALEs to provide plan a, a plan with minimum value, right? So, again, you know what's minimum value? It's basically a standard for measuring, uh, you know, the insurance plans to make sure it provides uh, at least the minimum amount of coverage uh, that ACA requires. So I, I believe it's something around you know sixty percent of total allowed cost of benefits. This means very little to both me as well as probably anyone uh, listening to this, right? How would you determine that? And that's because, right, there are standards and these are things that, uh, you know, brokers can, uh, you know, push you towards because, you know, for instance, um, 
you know, the metallic plans, right? Uh, the metallic tiers, bronze, uh, silver, gold, and platinum, right? All of those meet the minimum value, uh, you know, plan, uh, standard, right? So, you know, these are things that, you know, as, as, a, as an employer, do you necessarily need to understand the extent of minimum value or just be aware that it's a requirement and make sure you, you know, when you speak to your broker, hey, you know, can we confirm, right, that we're offering a metallic tier that offers, uh, you know, minimum, uh, minimum value, right? Yeah. So you know that you're 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 meeting those, and you know there are safe harbors for minimum value. I, I won't get into those because again, here, uh, you know, with minimum value, you're often going to be relying more on on the broker, right? But it is your requirement, so you need to ensure that you are offering uh, that plan that that provides you know minimum value. Yeah. So I, I think our guidance here is, uh, you know, we could get deep in the weeds, but the reality is. Penalty area number one is failure to offer, right? Um, and so you got to determine your your criteria whether you must offer or not. Then, if you do offer, does it meet the the minimum thresholds of cost and value? Um, and to that, um, I would say, entrepreneur friends, you don't have to memorize these things, but do make your broker prove to you that the plans you choose. Are, 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 are that they, they qualify, right? That they conform to the ACA for those two buckets of uh, affordability and value. Because certainly, if they can't, then you're with the wrong with the wrong broker, right? Because that's a fairly standard thing. But those are the two buckets that you need to have them show you that yes, I'm I'm now complying with the law here. Other Absolutely. other, yeah. Go, go ahead, Brian. What what else would you want to say around? around compliance. We talked about the, the types of businesses, the sizes of businesses uh, that must comply. We talked about the rules of compliance, we talked about the penalties of non-compliance. One of the things I wonder is maybe I'm a maybe I'm a 40 person FTE company and I choose to, whether it's the goodness of my heart or I see that I'm required to to simply attract and retain talent, can can a, a non-ALE, applicable large employer, so I'm a 40 employees, can I choose to offer whatever plan I want? Or if I choose to offer a health plan, must it also comply with ACA? Right. So if you're not an ALE, right, so you, you should still be providing, you know, at least a one plan that, you know, provides, um, you know, affordability and, you know, that and, and minimum value. Uh, but, you know, unlike for the ALEs, the you know, applicable large employers, uh, you know, these penalties are, are not necessarily, you know, you won't necessarily be subject to these penalties. Uh, that said, there are requirements for that would uh, apply to small employers, both that offer health insurance and that don't. Uh, because, you know, there are reporting uh, requirements under the uh uh, under ACA. Um, and so, you know, these include, you know, uh, 10, form 1095C, which, uh, right, which requires disclosure of certain health coverage, uh, you know, offers the full-time uh, employees of health coverage, right? You need to report that. Uh, there are deadlines for filing that, 
right? So, you know, most employers, I believe now, I think that was a change this year, most employers uh, will file electronically, even if you're not required to file these forms electronically, it's advantageous, you have a later filing deadline. Um, and, you know, failing, making mistakes on these filings, whether you're, you know, a large employer or a small one uh, that offers insurance, you know, can result in penalties. Um, but, you know, the, the general deadlines, I believe, are uh, the filing deadline, I believe, was uh, February uh, 28th. Um, and there's also, I think, a, a later, uh, you know, March 31st deadline if filing it uh, electronically. So you get, uh, you know, an additional month for filing electronically. Uh, so, you know, there are those requirements for filings. And there are, you know, again, uh, there are notices. As with most things uh, we, we deal with, uh, Mike, uh, there are some required notices. Uh, and, you know, failure to provide those can, can result in penalties. So, for instance, you know, and, and this, again, this can apply uh, to an ALE, you know, a large employer, or if you're a smaller one that is offering coverage, you're likewise going to be required to provide these notices. So, for instance, the summary of benefits coverage, right? So that is, uh, you know, that basically provides standard information to employees, you know, of, uh, you know, of what information, uh, you know, about their plan, right? You know, what it offers, things like that. And it's offered when they enroll for the first time or at the beginning of each uh, new plan year. Uh, and again, as we discussed, right, there, there are other uh, people, other companies that you're working with in terms of in, when you're offering health insurance. And so oftentimes it's the insurance carrier that provides the summary of benefits coverage. Uh, right. And so, again, as the employer, you're still you're still responsible for this. So even if the insurance carrier, you know, is required to provide it, which they are, but they don't, they're not the only ones on the hook. You as the employer are on the hook. Right. So it's right. good to understand. All right. I need to under, you know, did we offer the did we send this out to our uh, employees this year or, you know, or, you know, when this new employee enrolled? Uh, and penalties for failure to provide, uh, for instance, that uh, summary of benefits coverage uh, is over twelve hundred uh, dollars uh, per failure. Uh, so, you know, there are uh, significant, you know, penalties uh, for notice. Um, you know, there, there are other ones, right? If during the plan year there's a material modification to the plan, um, you know, we won't get into exactly what that is, but um, you know, it's something that, you know, impacts it significantly over the, uh, the plan year and you need to provide notice of that. And it can be $110 per day, uh, uh penalty for failing to provide that. Uh, so again, you know, employers, um, of all sizes also, you know, have to, uh, are supposed to report, uh, you know, uh, healthcare costs, if they meet a certain threshold of employee of number of W-2s they issued, um, there are other fees that they may be required to pay, or even, you know, small and large employers uh, might receive uh, the certain rebates under ACCA. And depending on the rebate, it might be something that the company needs to distribute to uh, enrollees, right? Their employees. And, 
you know, again, I, I don't want to get into ERISA right now, but under ERISA, you know, if the company holds on to that rebate for more than 90 days, it should technically be going into uh, some type of separate fund. Uh, so, so again, you know, as, as soon as, you know, whether or not you're an ALE, uh, you, you need to have an understanding of what uh, ACRA requires. And, you know, Mike, I think we've both said that, you know, brokers are great resources and they will be able to help, but it's not necessarily a one-stop shop. And, you know, again, with, with any statute that is going to penalize an employer, um, you know, you don't just want to rely on outside help. You want to have some understanding too, especially here where you have options in how to comply you want to understand, you know, what the best answers are for your particular business. Yeah. So I, I think, I think probably what I want entrepreneurs, small business owners on this call to, to really think about is, okay, we started the, started the, the conversation around which businesses are required to comply with ACA, but, and don't think that just because I don't, I'm not required to comply if I choose to, and I want to explore this in a minute because I think this is going to be an increasing trend. If I choose to offer health benefits for whatever reason, I still must comply with reporting and filing requirements. So I may not be on the hook for my 300 and what is it? My $240 per month per employee kind of penalties um, for not offering. Um, but there are still reporting requirements because you are providing healthcare to your employees and you got, you got still got to, you got to track and report all this stuff. So if you choose, you're not required to, but you choose to provide health coverage to your employees, you're not off the hook for all things ACA. You still have reporting requirements, right? Right. Exactly. And, you know, we will mention, we, we, I know we typically focus on our federal requirements, but just, you know, so it's known, you know, various states uh, still require uh, certain, uh, you know, filings in those jurisdictions. I mean, many have gotten rid of it, but I believe uh, California, uh, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., to name a few, uh, still require uh, employers to report, you know, various information, uh, health insurance information. So, uh, again, you know, the IRS isn't necessarily the only, you know, uh, place you're looking in terms of, uh, you know, filing requirements. I think maybe the last topic I want to explore, Brian, uh, and I'll ask you to step out of the role of uh, lawyer and into uh, uh, labor futurist, if you will. Um, here, here's my, my thinking on this. Um, the role of HR in, in small businesses you know, there's obviously a compliance component. So uh, Brian threw a whole bunch of stuff at you today. Things that are required of you, not required of you, depends on this rule versus that rule, seasonality, full-time versus whatever. There's a lot to it. It's complex. And so there's an HR role around uh, staying compliant with an everly increasingly framework of, of laws, federal, state, and local. All that said, um, if I go back to the intent of this, the intent of this law was to help bend the cost curve uh, and, and not put that, such an incredible burden on employees, right? 
So there's this is in my mind this is part of a continuum that is a shift from power of from the employer to the employee. And it doesn't matter whether you lean left or lean right. Uh, if you look at legislation passed from from both blue and red White Houses over the last 90 years, the continuum is clear. This power shift is happening and it will continue to happen. Combine that with uh, what is, I believe, a, a now nearly permanent labor shortage. Um you know, we can blame wars and pandemics in, in presidential politics on unemployment rates. But the reality is it's much more determinant on what is gross domestic product and how does, what is the productivity per employee over, over time and birth rates from 30, 40, 50 years ago. And the bottom line is boomers are retiring. Birth rates have been lower for 40 years. We're we're kind of at this level. There's unemployment is, you know, what, 3.6% in the June jobs report. Um, there's millions more openings than there are workers. Now, there's maybe mismatch in the types of openings versus skills of workers. So there's a, there, there's a lot of nuance here. But I'm of the belief that this labor shortage is a permanent structure for at least the next few decades. And that as an employer... Whether you do or don't, whether you must or must not comply with ACA based on uh, on how big you are, um, I think this is something that employers are going to have to take a serious look at because increasingly employees have cho- choices and they're going to vote with their feet. And if they can, a lot of them will want to work for a small business, but they're going to come with expectations of big company benefits. And so it's, it's maybe more of an encouragement to me from me to employers to don't think about this through the lens of what does the law require of me? And I'm going to do the minimum required, not because I'm a bad person, but because I'm trying to run a business and running a business is hard and I need to squeeze every penny out I can uh, of this thing. I, I think the biggest challenge for employers called the next 20, 30 years is attracting talent. Um, I'll get off my soapbox, but you you bring us home. What what are your thoughts on this topic, and and how does it uh, how how it relates to employers and how they should be thinking about healthcare? Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you, Mike. And I, I would put this in the basket of uh, you know other laws that we've probably seen more at the you know state and local levels yeah. that have you know even though they might add requirements for small employers they make them more competitive, right? Um, for instance, in New York, we've had, uh, you know, paid family leave or, uh, you know, New York City, New York State, you know, uh, paid sick time. Uh, these various things that, you know, look, as an employer, you can look at it one of two ways, right? Oh, an additional uh, requirement for me to uh, comply with, it's going to be more costly, or it's an opportunity, right? Or it's an opportunity to comply with this and, you know, be more competitive, right? Complying with it, you know, you're going to offer, uh, you know, similar benefits as a potentially, you know, larger employer might. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think with the job market as it is, and, uh, you know, I don't necessarily disagree that, uh, you know, with you in terms of whether, it, you know, it's going to change or not. I, I think it's, uh, it may be like this for a while. Uh, you know, companies, you know, need to think about, you know, the, you know, these competing pulls, right? Do I save a dollar now 
or is it an investment in a more stable and more talented workforce that will pay off down the road through you know the talent and better work for workers efficiency and all that not to mention you know building a better culture uh yeah. within organizations so right I, I think looking at these things as opportunities and then of course you need to ensure compliance uh but it absolutely uh, is uh, a potential for companies to offer something that can, you know, put them in higher demand, you know, with employees. Yeah, very good. Brian, always enjoy talking to you. I, I know the title of this was the increased penalties. Um, it was maybe the smallest part we covered, but it was it was maybe the most important. The, 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 how, how about this for a last thing? It's hard if you're an employer, if I drive down this road and I know the speed limit is 55 and I drive 75 on this road every day and I've never seen a cop, I might not be too, wor too worried about this thing, right? How is it that these cases even come up in the first place? And, 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 and maybe I'll, I'll pose my hypothesis and, and, and have you close with this. In a world where employees have increasing power and Healthcare is important to them. And an employee thinks that you're legally obligated to provide them with insurance, whether you are or you're not, increases the likelihood that they're going to complain. And maybe not them. Maybe it's their spouse. Maybe it's a family member who wants to get on that plan and they complain. Um, that's how these cases all of a sudden blow up. And it's a report to the Department of Labor. It's a, it's a report to the IRS. It's a report to from a disgruntled employee to an attorney. And all of a sudden, action is taken. There's a lot of people flying under their radar that are not compliant, not because they're bad humans, but they just simply don't know. But in this increasingly competitive war, war for talent, I think it's going to be the disgruntled employee that initiates some action. And that's how employers are going to get stung here. Am, am I thinking about that right? Yeah, exactly. And I think here, right, it's, you know, in different with different statutes, you know, with different laws, it's different employee action. And I think here that main type of employee complaint, right, it's not necessarily a complaint, but that employee who does not get offered, uh, you know, compliant health insurance, they go and they get a subsidy. And now you as the employer, you're going to be on the hook for some penalties. I think that, you know, in addition to that occurring, I think the other common, you know, uh, violations or, you know, areas we see that result in penalties are either, you know, a failure to file something with the IRS because either you may not know you have to or a late filing, not knowing when it needs to be filed, uh, inaccurate filings, uh, failing to check off certain boxes. Uh, you know, those th those things, too. But but absolutely, I think that, you know, with you know employees understanding their rights more, uh, if an employee understands that you haven't offered them appropriate coverage and they go and, you know, get a, you know, get a subsidy or you know, a credit, you know, employees know their rights more than ever these days. And the likelihood of that right. occurring when you know, inappropriate uh, coverage is offered to them is probably, you know, becoming more and more likely. Yeah. As Mary always says, the best way to avoid litigation or, or fines for noncompliance is to have great, respectful relationships with your employees, because uh, when they respect you, they'll give you a lot of latitude to make things right. So, Brian, always enjoy talking to you. Great conversation today. Hopefully everybody got value. Until next week's show, thanks for joining us.
At Assure, we build human capital management software and services that help 90,000 companies like yours attract, develop, and retain great people. Our low upfront costs and affordable subscription model allow you to save cash to invest in things that drive growth, not overhead. To learn more about how Assure can help you claim up to $26,000 per employee with the Employee Retention Tax Credit, automate your payroll, and build productive teams that are compliant with ever-changing HR laws, visit AssureSoftware.com.